0: Please be seated and make your way, if you will, to Genesis 42. Genesis chapter 42. <clears throat> We've come to the 43rd chapter in this book, and we'll look first of all at a few places in chapter 42, but as we come to this section of the account of Jacob as the section is headed dealing primarily with Joseph, but the account of Jacob, the history of Jacob. I'd like you, as we come into chapter 43, to picture in your mind a broad, deep river. Beautiful scene, perfect summer day. There's a man in a kayak who is walking along the stream and uh, gets into his kayak and is not sure of where he is, but he sets the small vessel down and begins to take the river where it will lead. He's rowing along and very happy with the situation until he hears the unmistakable roar of a waterfall up ahead. Well, he does the obvious. He turns around very quickly and begins to paddle for all that he is worth against the stream. And there's a certain point that comes there as he's paddling desperately where he begins to deny reality, saying that he's actually going against the stream when he really is going backwards toward the waterfalls. It's a powerful current now. And there comes then a certain point as he is desperately paddling that he gives up and admits reality. He abandons the struggle turns his kayak around, joins the flow of the mighty river and prepares for the inevitable. Wish as he may, the situation is out of his control. He is carried along by the force that is far greater than himself and he yields to the water. As his kayak is carried toward the precipice, the noise of the falling water thunders in his, ear. in his ears, his heart is in his throat and he's filled with fear. He has no idea the height or the condition of the falls. He has no idea the depth of the pool below. He braces himself and he cries out to God and holds on for the ride. There's nothing else that can be done. Sometimes the providence of God puts us in places similar to that, doesn't it? Maybe not physically, but in the circumstances of life, the deep river of human circumstances carries us towards a crisis We would never have chosen to face, but which we have no power to resist. We paddle furiously against the realities of life for a while, but eventually we must yield to the power of providence and we just hang on for dear life and pray for mercy. As we come to Genesis 43, that's somewhat of the situation in which we find Jacob primarily And to a a similar degree, maybe a little less of a degree, but to a similar degree, we find his sons in this very condition as well. This is not the first time that Jacob has been here, is it? Think of Esau. We think of Laban. We think of Esau again, back in the land after that journey into Haran. We think of Shechem. Jacob, it seems, continues to get into these kinds of situations where he fights against the obvious, but then eventually turns his kayak around, so to speak, and says, here we go, over another waterfalls. No matter how many times Providence carries you over such a falls, it is never an easy ride, and it's never very easy to enjoy. Let's take a few moments here to consider the backdrop of the two scenes that we find in Genesis 43. First of all, remembering from last week, if you will, we have physical famine in the land of Canaan. The entire region, including Canaan and Egypt, have been subjected to an intense famine. In Canaan, people are starving. To avert catastrophe, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt where he has heard that there are stores of reserve grain available for purchase. The ten sons go to Egypt. Chapter 42 and verse 4, however, before they go, Jacob did not send Benjamin, we read, his youngest son, The second son, and as far as he's concerned, the only remaining son of his favorite wife, Rachel, and so his prized son, Benjamin, 42 4. He does not send Benjamin with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now, the other ten then journey to Egypt, southwest to Egypt. They meet Joseph, who, you remember, hides his identity. And sells them grain but Joseph moves to alleviate more than just the physical crisis suffered by Jacob's family there is physical famine in Israel but remember there is secondly spiritual famine here Joseph there in Egypt is a gifted administrator and he devises an ingenious plan. His goal is to nurture repentance in his brothers' hearts with a goal to reconciliation with them. To this end, Joseph cleverly schemes to test his brothers. We need to think of this carefully. It would not be hard for them to repent outwardly, would it? They come before this great man of Egypt, the second most powerful man on earth, arguably, at the time. They stand before him, and they bow down before him and ask for grain, and he says, Boo! I'm Joseph. Immediately, they would have repented of everything they'd ever done or thought of doing to him. It would have been very easy for them to do that. How can Joseph determine their true heart attitude, however? Forget about the man from Egypt standing before them. What's really in their heart? Joseph devises this brilliant scheme to bring out through circumstances what is really in the heart of these men. Remembering again that it's Joseph doing this as God leads him to act in this way. God is the greater player. More on that in just a moment. But let's think about this. They have been living a lie for 22 years with regard to Joseph. They know what's happened to Joseph. They know that they've sold him into slavery. They've never told their father. How... Can Joseph know whether or not they will repent? He must get them under the same kind of temptation and see if they will act differently this time. So there's a scheme, a plot that Joseph devises. In Egypt, it involves this. Here's the first idea. You must bring Benjamin back here. He knows who Benjamin is. We know who Benjamin is, right? He's the son of Rachel. The only living son, as far as Jacob is concerned, replacing Joseph. Bring Benjamin back here to Egypt, says Joseph incognito. So they return home. But 42.35, we find the second part of Joseph's scheme. Chapter 42, verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. They were terrified. Well, the problem here is that after telling their father they must bring Benjamin back if they're going to get more grain, they find money in their sacks and they know they're now in very deep trouble because that man, whoever he is back in Egypt, has accused them of being spies and the only way that they can show they're not spies is to bring Benjamin back and now they have this money problem and they know the man is not particularly reasonable or easy to get along with, they think. Verse, 37, verse 36, rather. their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Woe is me. The stream of life is flowing backward. I, as I'm trying to paddle against it, it's taking me down a waterfalls and I don't want to go. And really here, what is Jacob doing? He's really denying reality. He's paddling for all he's worth. You are not taking Benjamin back there. Verse 38, then Reuben said to his father, and we need to remind ourselves of Reuben's ideas here because they come to play in chapter 43. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. It's still there, isn't it? It's still there, the favoritism. The disregard for his other brothers, the unfairness of it all, for for his other sons, the unfairness of it all. I've lost Joseph. If I lose him, I will have no one left, he says to his sons. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Well, get the picture again here. Jacob is paddling for all he's worth against the stream. He's going backwards, but he's saying, I'm still alive, I'm still pushing. He's not going down there with you. Denying reality, he's desperately fighting against the strong current of providence remember, there's no dreams telling him that Joseph is in Egypt. There's no visions to tell him what to do. Just these circumstances. Circumstances leading him where he does not want to go. So with unmitigated, unloving favoritism toward Benjamin, Jacob is willing to do what? Put it together here. If I lose this boy, I've lost everything. He says that, allowing Simeon to rot in prison. Doesn't care about Simeon. He can stay in Egypt for the rest of his life if he wants, but I'm not losing Benjamin. And what else else is he doing as he fights against reality? He's starving his family to death. This is not going to end anywhere but over the waterfalls. Jacob just will not admit it yet at this point. So the question is, will his sons respond to Benjamin now as they responded to Joseph. I think that's important to see here. And Joseph, in his brilliance and in the divine direction that God is giving him, is testing whether or not these these men, these brothers, will treat Benjamin like they treated him. And they have every cause to do so, don't they? Here's a father saying, hey, that son, he can rot in prison. I don't care about him. Just spare this Benjamin. The rest of us, we can all die here of starvation, but spare my precious Benjamin what do you want to do to a kid like that you want to drop him in a pit and walk away don't you the same situation is here but what we're seeing in God's grace is that this family is beginning to change and what God is doing is working through the providential means through providential means to change them remember how angry they were with Joseph They were so angry, chapter 37 and verse 4, that it says they could not speak shalom to him. The Hebrew word shalom. Peace, kindness, goodness, whatever it is. The word's very elastic, but it just means goodness. They, They couldn't even look Joseph in the face. They threw him in a pit. They ate lunch while he called for help. And they sold him into slavery, their own brother. What will they do now with this Benjamin? So here is Joseph's scheme. It is working to perfection, of course, as God works through him. Joseph is providentially, through providence, through circumstances in life, disciplining his brothers. Now, one more thing as we move in. We need to remember what is happening in the hearts of the brothers to this point in time. Let's go to chapter 42 and verse 18. In 42.18, I'm not going to take the time to build the context of each of these references, but if you'll just skim with your eyes or remember the context, verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, they're in prison, they come out, third day, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Now they have three days in prison to think about this. And what what is their conclusion? Verse 21, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. Not Benjamin, Joseph. We're being punished because of what we did to Joseph 22 years ago. They're getting the picture. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. That's why we're here pleading for our life and the man doesn't listen. Telling him we're not not spies and he doesn't listen. That's picture number one. Picture number two is verse 27. Verse 27, at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Watch the response. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, what is this that God has done to us? There was a day when they dropped Joseph in that pit, and they didn't care what God thought about anything. They had no fear of God before their eyes. They were willing to kill their brother, sell him into slavery, whatever the case. No fear of God. These men are beginning to fear God. What is God doing? What is happening? Now all of that needs to lead into our remembrance of what is happening in these chapters 42, 43, 44. To... Review again uh, this, this overhead, just, just picture it again. We have the providence of God at work in the big picture. Under that arch here, we have God and his special plan, our strategy for Israel. So God is providentially ruling heaven and earth. But more specifically, he has a plan for the people of Israel. That's to get them to Egypt. He's gone on record to say that in Genesis 15. They're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be enslaved. But now he is using specifically Joseph to bring this strategy to pass. And Joseph has a strategy. His strategy is for the spiritual famine and the physical famine of his his, uh, family. We uh, We have here the two yellow things are kind of melting together there, but there's kind of two separate ideas there. There's a spiritual strategy, that is he wants to bring his brothers to repentance. The physical strategy is he wants to give them freedom from famine. So Joseph is, in now I say this the right way, Joseph is kind of God here. I, I don't mean that really, but I mean the way that he's acting and working. It's the providence of Joseph that's working his brothers to a place of repentance and to a place of physical strength and health with food, and ultimately to a place with an address in Egypt. That's what God is doing. So keeping that all in mind, the strong current of providence then is leading Jacob to direct his sons back to Egypt where their transformation will be carried forward. Thank you. Let's go then to verse 1 of chapter 43. I know I built a big porch here, but we, we kind of need to do that because we need, really what we need to do is take three hours, do 42, 43, and 44 all at one setting. But I, I realize I'd be talking to a, echoing off the wall by the time we got to the end of that time, so we have to break it up into three weeks. But with all of that in mind, to remind ourselves of what is taking place here, we find the first scene in chapter 43, one of suffering from famine in Canaan. We'll have two scenes. The first, suffering from famine in Canaan. The second will be a surprise feast in Egypt. Chapter 43 and verse 1, Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judas said to him, you see it here, Dad, you're rowing against the current. This isn't going to work. The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Verse 4, If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Has Jacob forgotten the stipulations that his son shared with him? He just It's been so long, they've eaten all this food, and now Jacob has all of a sudden forgotten. I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Number one, the terms were crystal clear. This is exactly what his sons told him. And did Jacob just brush it off and say, Listen, guys, I'm busy. I don't have time to think about this. No, what did he say? Everything's against me. He throws up his hands in despair. The message was crystal clear. There's a second reason. I think we can pretty much prove it from the text. What is that? Simeon isn't there. And every day that Jacob considers, where, oh yeah, Simeon, that's right. He's down there in Egypt. I mean, he knows that they aren't going down there. He's rowing against the inevitable. The terms were clear. Simeon is conspicuously absent. Jacob knows what's, what, what's up. He just doesn't want to face the facts. But Judah steps forward taking leadership in the family and he says dad we've got to talk you're right we need to get back to egypt and we need to get grain but remember we can't you remember what the man said and you know what Dad, he wasn't messing around He warned us with great intensity, the Hebrew text would indicate, that unless Benjamin accompanies us to Egypt, we can purchase nothing. Dad, he's got to go. You've got to let him go. I suspect that two decades earlier, Judah may well have plotted to just seize Benjamin and haul him off to Egypt on his own initiative. What we're seeing here is a respectful interchange between father and son judah is obviously standing for the brothers asking permission to take benjamin well jacob has issued a heavy dose of reality and how does he respond like people turning a kayak around to go down a a river he's not real happy about it he bristles and he lashes out at his son unjustly i think in verse six why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother. Oh, there's grasping at straws. It's a cheap shot. He's just denying reality. He wants to keep his cake, eat his cake, keep his cake and eat it too. He wants to buy grain and to keep Benjamin with him. Jacob foolishly resists the strong current of Providence here. His Sons then answer this unfounded charge beginning of verse seven. They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? he asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, Bring your brother down here. Jacob's second guessing is unfounded. We might illustrate it a little bit these days of all the second guessing about September 11th, right? It's like you should know this was coming. Well, it's easy to second guess, Dad. Come on, how how could we ever have known that this man was going to say bring Benjamin down here? We had no idea. How can you possibly blame us for this? We weren't negligent. We were not loose-lipped. We just were honest to the man. Now here again, Judas steps forward and he wins the day. Verse 8, Then Judas said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life as it is if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. We're not sure if that's just hyperbole. It's just a, a figure of speech there or if it's really been that long. But you see his, his reasoning with his father. Verse 8, there's kind of a, an interesting note here. It's just I, probably doesn't, isn't important, but just to share with you. It's an interesting idea that he says our children there, that our children may live and not die. The Hebrew word is those who take little steps. I suppose the closest I can think of in our vernacular might be ankle biters or something like that, though that's not always a real positive phrase. But, but those who take little steps, those who shuffle, little kids. What's he saying to his dad? Think of your grandkids, the little children. You're starving to death because of your infatuation with Benjamin. You've got to let him go. To keep Benjamin, you'll starve Benjamin, and you'll starve the rest of us. Judah not only appeals to Jacob's sense of natural compassion for his clan, he also is willing to assume full responsibility. And he really outshines Reuben here, doesn't he? Reuben says, if I don't come back, you can kill my two sons. Well, that's a real great idea. But Judah says, you can hold me responsible, whatever that is. Kill me or don't kill me. Make my life miserable. Pour out your grief on me if I don't bring Benjamin back. Jacob senses in Judah an honesty, a forthrightness, and he realizes, furthermore, that he's right. Judah sincerely steps forward to assume full responsibility for Benjamin, and Jacob has nothing to do but yield. He wins his father over. Verse 11, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags, And take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. What's he doing? paddling his kayak around and saying, here we go. I'm going over the falls. I don't want to go over. I'm going to let go of Benjamin, and I'm going to let him leave. Jacob is in agony. He's never forgotten for 22 years that day that he sent Joseph off to look for his brothers. And I think, as we use the phrase, he's probably never forgiven himself for doing that. And now he's doing it again. He has nothing, he, he, he can't fight the obvious. Now, who's pulling the strings here? Again, we, we're blind if we don't see this in the book of Genesis. God has issued a famine. There's nothing Jacob can do. He can't go anywhere else to get food. There's a famine that God has providentially allowed to plague this area. He's going to Egypt. There was also this thing about the dreams of chapter 37 of Joseph's brothers bowing down to him. And that all needs to take place here. Well, take a gift. Here's his commands. All right, you're going to go. What does, he, what does he say to do? Number one, take a gift. Take some of the best things in the land, some things such as the, uh, the almond tree don't grow in Egypt, so these would have been specialties. This would have been typical protocol to approach a, an important official. Secondly, take your money back. Now, remember that last week? It, it seemed that possibly Jacob wasn't quite sure if that money was honest money or not. It was really found money or if it was taken money. But he says, all right, take it back. Maybe it was some type of an accident and you didn't find a way to steal it. Take the money back. That's his second command. And what's his third command? Oh, this is the hardest of all, isn't it? All right, here's Benjamin. Take him and go. What Jacob says next is highly significant to the unfolding of this narrative. Look at verse 14. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Again, a word indicating the loss of children. Now what's so important about this, the word bereaved that is, what's so important about this statement is the phrase God Almighty or the Hebrew El Shaddai. It is a name of God associated with blessing and promise keeping and promise making of covenantal loyalty to the people of God. I will trust in El Shaddai. I will trust in our God to bring you back. He's praying as he's going over this waterfalls. He's praying. May God bring you back. You notice how he talks of Simeon. The favoritism's still there. Your other brother. He doesn't even name him. Sure didn't think a whole lot of Simeon. It doesn't appear. But if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I've lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, I lose him. I realize there's nothing else that I can do, but I can do this. I will appeal to God Almighty. By invoking the blessing of of God, Jacob is at least acknowledging that it is not Judah, or the man back in Egypt, whoever he is, who will protect Benjamin. It's God who will protect him. Now think again as we think of that that chart and the big picture of God's providence. What is He doing here as He works and strategizes for Israel? Remember the the dreams of chapter thirty-seven. They're still unfulfilled. Ten brothers have bowed down before Jacob, but not. 11 there's one more to go and without the severity of this famine how is that going to happen jacob was ready to resist this whole thing tooth and nail to give everything that he could to resist this taking place but he can't because of the famine nothing that he can do he's caught up in a cloud of negativity Trapped between the reality of the famine and the prospect of his life being once again shaken by tragedy, he throws up his hands and says, take your brother, but may God bring you back. So Jacob sends his son southwest to Egypt with this mission. Deliver the gift. Return money, proving your integrity and honesty, that you're not spies. Recover Simeon and get more food. Now don't lose sight of all of this as we think on the the area of restoration. So the first scene here is suffering from famine in Canaan. We move then to verse 15 and we look at a section which we might call surprise by feasting in Egypt. Verse 15, so the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. There's their three things. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. So here's the scene. Seeing Benjamin is a really good sign, and Joseph knows that. They've come back. They've come back, they have to have come back with the money, or I'll lean on them about that. But they probably come back with the money, they've come back with Benjamin, this is good. This is, this is indicating God is doing something in their hearts that we're moving toward reconciliation. He says slaughter an animal. It's a, it's a rare thing in this time to uh, consume, or to t- it was time-consuming to prepare an animal, and it was something done only on very special occasions the problem is, while Joseph knows that what he's doing, the brothers, of course, do not, and they're in something of a panic, verse 18, to get someone to hear them. Verse 18, now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. I don't know if that's funny or not, but it hits me as funny. I mean, it's like some kids coming into this multi-million dollar mansion and saying the guy wants to take our bikes you know (laughs) he's got everything he needs he doesn't need their donkeys but what they're really fearful of is their necks i don't know how to picture this but maybe it's obvious to us but you know if you if you fly overseas you come through the customs and the customs officer says to you here here's a cup of coffee my boss would like to talk to you over in his office I mean, are you walking over to that office all excited about this coffee? You're saying, what is this leading to? That's where they're at here. Oh, yeah, great, we get to eat with this guy, but what's he going to do to us? He's going to jump on us. He's going to take us and put us into slavery. You see what they're facing? This is guilt talking, folks. This is nothing more than guilt talking. These men have been living a lie for 22 years under conviction. One commentator says, For the guilty, even hospitality can seem ominous. For the guilty, even hospitality can seem ominous. Or as Shakespeare put it, King Henry VI, Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Uh, Isn't there a great irony here? Twenty-two years ago, these men ate a meal, then sold their brother into slavery. They now fear that at this meal, they will be attacked and enslaved Joseph is very carefully and with God's tremendous aid is bringing things back upon their heads to face the very situation that they had uh, perpetrated upon Joseph. They're still jittery from their last visit. They know this man is not somebody to mess around with. They're right about one thing there, and that is that the Egyptian has sinister intent. We'll find that in chapter 44. It's under it's a it's under guise, of course, but he does have sinister intent for bringing them back here. But more on that later, Lord willing. Verse 19. At this point, so they went up to Joseph Stewart and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. You see him they just were like running up to the guy, grabbing him and saying, "You got to listen to us here before we get into the into the house itself." They're apparently in some type of a courtyard. Please, sir, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack, so we have brought it back with us. Did you hear us there? We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. This is a happy scene. This is a happy scene for Joseph, though you may not be watching it. This has not been the pattern of their lives over the years. They have been known to be very deceitful men, and here they want to come clean. In chapter 42, we saw two separate events, 42 in verse 27 and verse 35 where this money was discovered. I have to say honestly. I don't know if my answer last week was right. I don't I, It's hard to know. did they all discover the money in their sacks? chapter 42 at the same time while they were traveling? chapter 42 seems to say definitely not. Chapter 43 seems to say that they did. It doesn't make a lot of difference, but at any rate, either they're compressing the story or they are just uh, the, the story itself as the author put it together as Moses put it together in chapter 42 was not seeking to be chronologically accurate but was being thematically accurate if that caught anybody's attention you have a clue what I'm talking about here but at any rate they just tell him we all found money in our sacks they're scared notice the grace that flows from verse 23 to the confessing there is grace verse 23 it is alright He said, don't be afraid. I I hear him like biting his tongue, almost chuckling here and saying, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And he brought Simeon out to them. It's all right. Well, that's a, those kind of translations kind of jump out at us, don't they? And they should. It's It's the Hebrew word shalom. Not it's all right, but shalom, peace to you everything's fine he reassures them all as well and this marks a major turning point in the tension between joseph and his brothers it'll turn back in chapter 44 but here the hostility begins to evaporate now a couple of notes on this steward first of all i would say this the steward is probably in on joseph's plot you notice that he makes no investigation if somebody said to you, you know, we, you sold us an awful lot of stuff and we have all the money we brought with us here. Is it possible that you overlooked something? Wouldn't you go check your records? Wouldn't you ask around? Wouldn't you say, tell me more about the situation? He just says right up front, peace, gentlemen. No problem. I've got your money. How does he know he's got their money? He reassures them that all is well. I think because he knows that all is well. It would have been very interesting for them to have asked him how he is so sure that they're right, but that doesn't cross their minds. We, of course, have already been told in 42.25 that this was all Joseph's doing. That's very clear in chapter 42, and it's probable here that his steward is very much part of the scheme. matter of fact, he might have himself physically put the money in their sack. So he knows what's going on. So first of all, I think the steward's probably in on the plot. Secondly, I think the steward is probably up on Joseph's faith. You notice there that he speaks of your God and whom? The God of your father. Now that's a phrase that would definitely conjure up images of the true God and of a a biblical view of Yahweh. And it's very possible, I would say probably, maybe we could say probable, that Joseph has instructed his steward in the things of God And he knows how to answer these men. This isn't just your God, small g, I have no clue who he is. This is God, capital G, the God of your fathers, the one who made to you the promise of an offspring and a land. That God has put money in your sack. Is he saying miraculously? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is providentially. He's used means to do it, but your God has restored your money. And he's probably, I would, if I'm right about this, it's a little bit of a guess, but I think he's probably just biting his tongue here saying, and I know who did it. But he can't say anything here. He'll blow his, his boss's cover, so to speak. So the steward attributes the money to God. Verse 23, at the latter part of the verse, he said, I received your silver, then he brought Simeon out to them. Now notice here, if you will, a deliberate connection in the text between their bringing the money back and Simeon being released. The connection is not made between their bringing the money back and Benjamin being there. Or, or rather, uh, Simeon being released and Benjamin being there. That connection's not made by Moses, so I think what we're supposed to see is that they've passed this test in Joseph's mind. If they bring the money back, that's what I'm looking for right away. Now, Benjamin is also an important part of that. But there's, um, well, I, I think we can safely deduce that had the brothers not mentioned the silver, Joseph would have confronted them Having brought the money back, they passed the test, and Joseph has instructed the steward to speak peace to them. Now, you'll notice here, this doesn't mean it didn't happen, but the text does not indicate that they were jumping up and down when Simeon got out. Judah's argument to Jacob was starvation, not to get Simeon back. Jacob was quite happy to leave Simeon right there, and there might be some indication in the text that so were his brothers, frankly. He was kind of an ordinary guy, according to chapter 34-25, the whole issue of Shechem, and chapter 49, verses 5-7, through 7, his father's blessing, quote-unquote, upon him, it sounds a lot more like a curse. He was not a good man, and perhaps it would feed into the idea that Joseph selected him very purposefully to put in Egypt, put, to put in prison in Egypt the man that they least wanted to get back. That will really test their heart when it comes to this bringing this money back, they're going to have to part with their money to get back the one, son, the one man that they really don't like. And they're going to have to bring Benjamin, the other man that they have reason not to like because of their father's favoritism. Does that make sense? So Simeon is released here. He had to have done a good deal of worrying, I would say. I whether hyperbole or not, Judas said, we could have returned two times by now. And let me tell you, Simeon was figuring that out too in his cell, that where in the world are these guys? They could have been back here before now. Why haven't they come back to get me? I'm sure he did a little bit of um, thought there, and uh, considering his previous life and all that he had done to deserve what he's getting here. He's sweating a little bit. I'm sure, but he is released to them finally in verse 23. The steward then verse 24 took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. <clears throat> Just common acts of hospitality. And now it's the brothers' turn for an act of turn for an act of hospitality. Verse 25, they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. Here we have fulfillment of the dream. At least in regard to the brothers. Eleven bowing down just as Joseph had dreamed. He asked them how they were. There again is an English a concept that is really just the Hebrew word shalom. He asked them how they were, and then they said, and then he said, "How is your aged father?" Again, the Hebrew word shalom. What is the peace of your father? You told me about. Is he still living? They replied, "Your servant, our father, is still alive and well." And they bowed down low, and they bowed low to pay him honor. There's the second bowing, the second time, in fulfillment of the dream of chapter thirty-seven verse 29 as they looked about and saw his as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin his own mother's son he asked is this your youngest brother the one you told me about i think he probably knows but he asks to keep cover and he said and here it seems that you get as close as you ever get to joseph blowing it he says god be gracious to you my son God, be gracious to you, my son. My son. They aren't all that far removed in in, uh, years uh, as brothers, but this was an appropriate term for Joseph's position in Egypt. And Benjamin is always considered the little boy here in all of this uh, context. But he seems to almost blow his cover, doesn't he? You can hear his voice soften and his eyes moisten as he says this. God, be gracious to you, my son. Man, it's just hard to even think about it. This is his real brother. His only real brother. Mother and father shared, first time in 22 years, and how the emotions must have welled up there as he considered all those lost years. And yet, what God was graciously doing. God be gracious to you, my son, he says as he looks in his brother's eyes. Verse 30 deeply moved at the sight of his brother. Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room, and he wept there. Joseph's heart leaps when he sees this young man, and a lump of joy lodges in his throat and begins to spill out his eyes in tears of happiness and relief. Bush writes, tears shed on proper occasions throw a grace over the manliest character. There is a time to weep. And this is that time for Joseph. Verse 31, after he had washed his face, he came out and controlled himself and said, serve the food. He's got his composure again. He's got to go through with this plan. He can't blow it here. He's got one more very important test. And he's got to make it through to really discern their heart. Verse 31, controls himself. Verse 32, they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. If you write in your Bible, and I laud you for it, if you do, you need to make a mark there. That phrase is very, very important to what is happening. The Egyptians see the Hebrews as detestable. First of all, let's consider here quickly these, uh, uh, the irony here. The last time these men had eaten in Joseph's presence, he was under their thumb and under the ground. Now he is on the top of the world. They ate while contemplating his murder and eventually selling him into slavery. He now eats at, as their benefactor and reconciling agent. This is grace. Joseph is working to see a point of forgiveness and reconciliation, and he's allowing those juices to flow, so to speak. Now, why are they at three separate tables? Probably we're to understand that Joseph was at his own table because of his, his status his, his, um, uh, in, in, in the culture there in Egypt. But we also see this note that because Hebrews are detestable to Egyptians... Does that mean the Hebrews were disgusting eaters? They were just slobs, and everybody got just turned off when you sat with a Hebrew eating. I don't think that's it at all. The word detestable could be translated abomination. It's connected to the ancient concept that eating was an expression of sacred fellowship. The issue was probably one of ethnic and cultural superiority. These people have an inferior job. They're shepherds. That comes into play later. These people have an inferior worship. It's detestable to us. We have the nexus between this life and the afterlife. Pharaoh is that one. This is some side meaningless religion out up there in Canaan. It's just got it's gotten started. We've probably heard about this Abraham guy. We don't know a thing about it. It's just some new late-breaking idea. And it's absolutely meaningless and fruitless. These people are detestable to us. One thing we're not going to do is eat with them. The most sacred event in mundane life was to eat with someone in that setting, in that culture. Uh, There's Wayne here. He'll remember that from India. I got so tired of eating when everybody showed up, I thought I'd burst. You've got to throw food out. They had People come to the house they didn't like, and they throw food out in front of them. Just, just, it's got to eat. That's, that's something of the culture here. You, you eat, but when you eat, you're saying, I'm with you. The Egyptians are not going to ever say that to the Hebrews, that we're with you. They will never eat with them, because to that would be an abomination. Now, Why is that so important? Why do I say star that in your Bible, or underline that in your Bible? Do you remember chapter 34? What was the big problem that Israel faced there? In 34, the whole issue was Shechem. Remember there that the problem was that the Canaanites were masters at intermarriage and amalgamation. The Canaanites were an integrationist type of culture. The Egyptians are a segregationist culture. In this land, where their way of life was held in contempt, god will be able to preserve the holiness and the uniqueness of his people until this embryonic group can become a great nation that may never have happened at least hypothetically would not have happened had they remained in canaan with the canaanites but here in egypt it was clear from day one hebrews over there egyptians over here never the twain shall meet That is helpful for the establishment of the nation and the keeping of the holy people of God verse 33 with that in mind the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest and they looked at each other in astonishment you can imagine now remember here too that these men were born within seven years of one another this isn't a thing of lining up the tallest or the or the oldest looking all the way down to the youngest these men were all about the same age, and here they are seated in order. Now, there—somebody help me out here. I, I would have never even known this, even thought about this. But one scientist has calculated that 11 men put in 11 different seating arrangements—that there are 39,917,000 possibilities. I can honestly say I didn't check his math because I don't even know how to start. (laughs) But but this is a scientist that's put this out, and he says that it's a very simple equation. Anybody know how to do it? Some of you know probably what what he's talking about. Now, I don't think they pulled out their calculator out of their tunic, you know, and started figuring this out. But one thing that's quite clear to all of them is this is no fluke. And they are, to use our word, a little freaked about the whole thing. And we have to link this back to chapter 42 and verse 21. We, they have a similar experience there when they say, surely we're being punished because of our brother. That's why this distress has come upon us. Or verse 28 of chapter 42. Their hearts sank as they turned to each other, trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Now in a, in a, in a more beautiful setting, they are saying virtually the same thing. What is going on here? They just never get it that it's Joseph. I mean, you'd think that one of them would say, who are you? What's going on here? But it they, they never hits them. They are just, that's just not even a concept in their mind. So Joseph is really having fun here. Verse 34, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. The custom here is that the head table, Joseph's table, the food would be served to him, and he would take plates. I don't know how that worked, if he dished them up or if they were plates or what, but he would take food from his table, and he would pass them to his guests. So though we don't eat together, I am saying we are in a degree of fellowship together here. I will hand out your food to you, and he piles a whole bunch on Benjamin's plate. The reason is not. I remember thinking this as a kid. Oh, those poor guys—they all went hungry, <laughs> except for Benjamin. You know, he's over there pigging out, and they're all jealous. That's not—that's not the case. This is something that we that we can see uh, historically in the culture. What it was was symbol. It was a symbolic way of saying I favor you five times more than all of the others. They all had plenty to eat. This is a feast. In an Egyptian king, if I can use that word, and Egyptian kings are are overseers, prime minister's palace, they're not going hungry. But he makes it very clear to all of them, I favor this guy. Now, what is that going to do? You see how it heightens the test. Joseph purposely, in front of all of his brothers, favors Benjamin. He says, may God be gracious to you, son. He passes a blessing on in front of... He didn't say that to any of us. He's saying that to Benjamin For This guy just shows up. We've been down here two times, gone through all of this hassle. Benjamin just shows up, and the guy says, bless you, my son. And then he gives him five times more on his plate. He's heightening the tension of this favoritism that is part of their family experience, and he wants to do everything that he can to get them to abandon Benjamin if it's in their heart to do so. You can almost imagine them saying, what in the world is the deal here? Our father favors this kid over us, and now he shows up to a total stranger, and he favors him too. You really start getting irritated with this Benjamin guy, and all of those vengeful juices begin to flow again, don't they? You know what's so exciting about it all is the last phrase of this chapter, they don't. It says, so they feasted and drank freely with him. This is a scene of joy, not jealousy. This is a scene of celebration, not vengeance. There's a victory that's been won here. The brothers have passed muster. They have treated their father with deference, honesty, and respect. They have returned their money with integrity. They have rescued their brother Simeon, who maybe none of them really cared to rescue. And now the ultimate test for them, when Benjamin is favored, they eat and drink with joy. You know what? They too have turned the kayak around and are going downstream with the providence of God. This guy's going to favor Benjamin. We've lived with this before. We're not going to do to Benjamin what we did to Joseph. More importantly than any of this, they showed fear of God. There is now, as Joseph continues to scheme in God's behalf, just one final test to pass. If they pass it, Joseph will take the mask from his face and he will lay it aside and he will embrace his brothers and forgive them, weeping with joy in their arms. Will they pass that test? Very quickly. The signs are very good. God is doing a work in the heart of Joseph's brothers. they passed several tests showing their contrition for what they did to Joseph and showing a growing sensitivity to and fear of God. Joseph has one more test now up his sleeve, and through him, obviously, God, or God through him, has one more test for the family. So we start the passage, Jacob's saying, we're hungry, let's eat. And Joseph's saying, you've come here now to Egypt, let's eat. It all leads to fellowship and restoration. But back in Canaan, where's Jacob? He's anything but happy. He's looking at the waterfalls. matter of fact, he's going over it. There's a foreboding, scary, hateful attitude in Jacob's mind right now. Joseph is gone. Benjamin is gone. What horrible news would be brought back this time when his sons return. And it's difficult to fault Jacob in one sense. When you're going over the waterfalls of God's providence, it's not always a lot of fun. It's scary. But it's doable. Painful. But you know where so much of the pain comes? It comes in the resistance to it all. I've told this illustration before, I'll tell it the rest of my life, I suppose, but it's been helpful to me. I was uh, working with a uh, camp, a summer camp, uh, some years back, and there was, we went one day to a water park as uh, part of the program, and at that water park there was a water slide called the black hole, for good reason, it was a chute that just went straight down into the earth, and as you got to the bottom of course it leveled out and shot you through into this into this pool but you dropped for about a story and a half maybe two stories so about the distance of this this ceiling straight down i mean basically you know it's a little bit of an angle but you just drop through this hole and of course you got to do it you're the leader so you go and you do it <laughs> and you're biting your tongue the whole way down and thinking what is wrong with me and i'm never coming to camp again and and, and you know how you you just tense. I mean I mean you're sore the next day. You're so tense fighting this drop. It's just it just scares you. But we went up and down and up and, and after a certain point I got to the point of saying, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna I'm gonna lose my lunch here if I don't do something differently. This is just killing me every time. And I said you know what, there's no doubt where I'm going to end up. I've been down here about three times. There's no doubt what's going to happen. I'm just going to go for the ride. And I work the rest of the day on relaxing. Just let let the ride take you. And I found it was a lot more enjoyable. You just sit back and go for the ride. And I was running up the steps. I went up ten times in a row down that one thing when I figured that out. That'll help you on roller coasters too, by the way. We look at Jacob, and we're tempted to say, listen, man, just relax, right? God's got this in control. He's going over the waterfalls, and we look at it from our angle and say, just relax, Jacob. Well, to some degree, I know that it falls very far short, and I don't mean to make light of the trials of life that we face, but that's a, in a, to a degree an illustration of what faith is. It's letting go. I mean, Not in the middle of that black hole. You're not going to you know, put your hands on the side of it and stop yourself and climb back up. You're going down. You're, over the, you're going over the waterfalls. You're going down. It is, you're, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. When the circumstances of life no longer permit legitimate resistance, there's a point where you just need to leave it in the hands of God and go with the flow. Oh, I've got, I've got to stop. I'm, it's, it's, it's late. Let me just read one passage. I realize it's really late but here, but which we can take with us as we go down the waterfalls, as we go down the black hole, providence of life, is Romans chapter 8. You know it so well, but we can always say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would that Jacob could have said something like that to his God, and would that we would learn to say the same things when we are going over the waterfalls of providence. Let's bow for prayer.